This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello once again and thank you for joining the program today. We're going through the three principal aspects of the path a short text by the founder of the Guluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, Lama Tsongkhapa, and have reached the verse on developing bodhicitta, the mind wanting to gain enlightenment to best benefit all living beings. The Tibetan tradition describes two ways to do this, the six cause and one effect method and equalizing and exchanging self for others method. And we are discussing the second and in particular the way to exchange self for others. As I said before, this does not mean physically swapping oneself with other people, but changing the mindset focused on one's own well-being only to focused on being focused on the well-being of others. Of course, one should look after oneself. We're not saying don't bother about yourself and just care for others. The thinking is rather put others' welfare before yours, but look after yourself first so that you are in the best position to help those others. In fact, how can you benefit them if you've so run down yourself that you can't function properly? Anyway, we ended the last program with the following two verses from Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. But why should I protect them if their suffering does not cause me any harm? Then why protect myself against future suffering if it causes me no harm now? It is a mistaken conception to think that I shall experience the suffering of my next life for it is another person who dies and another that will be reborn. In the first verse, playing the devil's advocate, Shantideva raises the objection that there is no need to help others as their suffering doesn't affect oneself. He then refutes the objection by saying that under the same reasoning there is no need to worry about safeguarding ourselves from future suffering. The person we will be at any future time will not be the person we are now. Everything will have changed. So, if we're going to protect all those future incarnations through our actions now, why don't we similarly protect all the beings that are not ourself at the present moment? Other beings are just other beings, whether they are different bodies and consciousnesses now or in the future. Tipton Children took the example of oneself now and when one is 80 years old. If you look at yourself in the mirror tonight, and saw your 80-year-old face staring back at you, would you say, Oh yes, that's me? No, you would probably be horrified, and the younger you are, the more horrified you've been, no doubt. But now, concerned about your old age, you may be putting aside some money every month, or paying off a mortgage, so that when retirement comes, you have enough to stay comfortable. Over a relatively long period of time, you will thus be doing something to safeguard a being that will be different from you now as any stranger you pass in the street. 
So then, if you're going to protect one set of strangers in this way, why not set out to protect all? Shantideva also goes on to query why you act in ways to ensure your next life will be happy because the person you will be in that life will definitely not be the person you are in this one. For example, if I, Tenzin, am born as a donkey in my next life, I will not conceive of myself as Tenzin in a donkey's body. I will be a donkey's persona in a donkey's body. The Tenzin eye and the donkey eye will be quite different. The other famous children, Pema children, in her commentary to Shantideva's text takes a different tack. She refines the argument and shows that even the eye of a moment in this life is not the same eye of another moment. She writes, If a knife cuts me, it hurts. This is obviously why I protect myself. But if the knife cuts you, I don't feel a thing, so why should I be concerned? Shantideva refutes this argument by saying that the eye we're constantly trying to protect today, tomorrow and next week is not the same eye of this moment. It is constantly changing and perishing. Every second another eye is born. And, as His Holiness also points out, because what we think of as I is a succession of instants in a continuum of consciousness, and the eye of the moment that will suffer in the future is different from the eye of the present moment. Well, think about it. Although when we casually think about me, it appears that it is the same me from one moment to the next, the same me through the days, weeks and years, it is not. What has survived from when you were a baby to now? Is there really something that you can point to and say, that was me then and it is the same me now? Everything has changed. Your body, your mind, your outlook, everything. The only thing we can point to is a continuum from that time to now, but it's an ever-changing continuum. Even the eye that you experienced a moment ago has, in subtle and maybe not so subtle ways, changed in the traverse to this moment. As Buddha said, everything is impermanent, meaning changing instant by instant, and that applies to us, no matter how much we grasp at some stability and permanence in our lives. But now before we go on, let's set a motivation for the program today, thinking as usual of bodhicitta, something like, may I through this program gain enlightenment so that I, that I can be of the greatest benefit to all living beings. And if you can't motivate like that, then let the program contribute as a cause to your own liberation and eventual enlightenment. Now let's think something like that. Thank you. When we've really developed bodhicitta, then we'll take care of others as the hand cares for the foot. What I mean is this, if you stub your toe, what does your hand do? Doesn't it immediately, without any premeditation, reach down and soothe the foot as well as it can? It is almost as if the hand itself feels the agony of the foot. It certainly doesn't lie in rest, cogitating, Oh, that stupid foot has hurt itself again. Now, should I go and help or should I just leave it to sort itself out for a change? Tipton Children says, The foot and the hand, they are other, they aren't the same thing. Yet one helps the other. Why? Because we conceive of them as being part of the same organism. Our mind puts the hand and the foot together and makes it part of the same organism. In the same way, if we stopped focusing so much on the individual I and thought more of the collective, 
that we are one group of sentient life, then helping another part of that identity becomes like helping oneself. Just as the hand helps the foot and doesn't think twice about it. Now how can we develop this conviction that we're all just part of the same organism? Shantideva gives us a clue when he says, such things as a continuum and an aggregation are false in the same way as a rosary and an army. There's no real owner of suffering, therefore who has control over it? Being no inherent owner of suffering, there can be no distinction at all between that of myself and others. Thus I shall dispel it because it hurts. Why am I so certain that I shouldn't eliminate the suffering of others? And basically what he's saying is that when you search for the owner or experiencer of suffering, you will not be able to find such a thing. All you will really find is suffering. Let's look at this a little more closely, taking his example of an army. Let's say you're the king or queen of a small country who's being threatened by a neighboring territory. You have to raise an army pretty quickly, so you decree that all able-bodied persons must present themselves at your palace at a certain time in the morning. Now you have this motley collection of people on your doorstep, so you start picking those that can fight. You go there, you say, pointing to a parade ground, when you see someone suitable, and you go home to those who aren't. Now at what stage of the proceedings will you be able to say, now we have an army? Is it after you've chosen five people, or ten, or a hundred, or two hundred, a thousand, or ten thousand? Only you can say. If your enemy has a force of five thousand soldiers, you may decide that you will only have an army when you have ten thousand. When you hear that actually the enemy has only five hundred combatants, you might be satisfied with an army of one thousand. In other words, no army exists outside of your mind labeling army on the collection of people that satisfies your need. Shantideva is saying there's no such thing as an army outside of the mind labeling it so on a base, that is, the collection of people you label soldiers. If suddenly your neighbor decides not to wage war and disbands his army, you might decide to keep all the people you have chosen on as farmers for your land and stock. Now, where's that army of soldiers? In an instant, it has become a paddock of farmers. There's no inherent independent army, and if you go looking for such a thing, you will not find it. Similarly, when does a collection of beads become a rosary? After five beads, after fifty, or after a hundred and eight? Only when the mind labels a collection of beads rosary does the rosary come into existence. Just as no inherent Independent army can be found, no such rosary can be, can be discovered either. These two examples Shantideva uses to illustrate that when we try to find the I that is experiencing suffering, all we can actually find is a label on a collection. This time, the collection is not people fit to be soldiers or beads fit to be a rosary, but the aggregates and the continuum of a single person. If you could build a person from scratch, at what point in time would you be able to say, now I've created a person, or now a person has come into being? It's entirely up to your mind, isn't it? As soon as you apply the label to the collection of parts or aggregates you've assembled, the person comes into existence. If you created another person, you might decide that one is a person much later or earlier than the first one was. It depends on your mental labeling process. 
Similarly, if we regard ourselves as a continuum of instants of life, at which instant do we label, this is me? It is entirely up to the mind, as there is no inherent and independent me arising out of any of the instants. Me, or I, is just a label applied to a series of instants, each with its own causes and conditions. So when I say, oh, I'm suffering, who is it that is actually in pain? And when we see someone else suffering, can we find the actual person in misery? The eyes might convey anguish, but are the eyes the person? Is the nose, the heart, and so on? We can investigate like this every dimension of the body and mind, but we will not be able to find an independent person that is the owner of the suffering. In other words, there is just suffering, and if we are going to relieve it when it appears to affect ourselves, we should necessarily relieve it to the best of our ability when it appears to affect others. Now what do you think of this argument? It will probably be quite hard to fully understand in practice, but Tupton Chodron approaches it from a body-based point of view. She asks why we see the body we inhabit as mine. If you cut it open, do you find a big me, she asks. If you laid out all your organs, a couple of kidneys and an intestine, and a big and small intestine, the eyeballs and some spleen, you know, you laid them all out, would you look at all that and say, that's mine, that's me? You'd say, yuck, wouldn't you? So what's mine about this body? And if we look at the fact that genetically, half of the genes come from our mother and half of the genes come from our father, then it's actually our parents' body, isn't it? It's not our body. What are we doing labeling I and mine on this body? We should be labeling mom and dad's body because it came from them, didn't it? Or maybe we should label it the farmer's body because all the broccoli and tofu and everything else we ate came from the farmers. If you eat meat, you should call it the cow's body because your body is a transformation of the cow's body or the chicken's body or the fish's body. So how can we label it my body? There's nothing my about this thing. It all came from other people, and yet we see by the power of just familiarization and the power of self-grasping, our idea of this being my body becomes so strong. It becomes harder than a diamond, doesn't it? Yet that's something completely invented by our mind because there's nothing my, mine about this body. This body actually belongs to others. She goes on applying the same logic to possession, starting with money. It's like thinking that money belongs to me, she says. Were you born with any money? Did you come out of your mother's womb with a fistful of dollars? We didn't. We came out of our mother's womb totally broke. Any money we have now is because other people gave it to us. So the money actually belongs to other people. It's not my money. Well, now, actually, I would say the money doesn't belong to anybody. It passes from one person to another from the moment it is created to the moment it goes out of commission. While it's in the bank, we might say it's my money, but that's just an idea. Certainly the stuff labeled money you put into the bank is not the stuff labeled money you take out of the bank. It's only figures in your and your bank manager's heads. And if you disagree about the amount, a judge might have to be employed to bring your and your bank manager's ideas together again. Tipton Jordan goes on, Everything we have, clothes, house, car, everything you have, you have because somebody else gave it to you. You didn't come out of the womb with all these things. Yet with all these things, we label them mine. So the same with our body. 
We only have it because other people gave it to us. The farmers gave us the food to eat. Mom gave half the genes. Dad gave the other half of the genes. So why are we making such a big deal about this mine and making it so solid and holding onto it as my identity? It doesn't make much sense. She says thinking like this makes it somewhat easier to exchange self for others because there's no real me to start off with. She continues, So when we dispel this difference between I and others by realizing that they aren't inherently existent, we come to see that suffering is suffering, no matter whose it is, and it's something to be dispelled, no matter whose it is. And happiness is happiness, no matter whose it is, and is something to be worked for. On the basis of that, changing who we care about the most, I and others, becomes much easier to do. Now you could apply this type of thinking to the suffering itself. Just as when searching we cannot find a real I that suffers, when searching we cannot find any real suffering either. The suffering doesn't exist apart from the mind labeling on a base. But this leads to the question, if neither the sufferer nor the suffering actually exist, what is the point in trying to relieve others' sufferings? Here is Shantideva again, playing the devil's advocate. But since neither the suffering nor the sufferer truly exist, why should I turn away the misery of all? This is no ground for argument, for if I pre prevent my own sufferings, surely I should prevent the sufferings of all. If not, since I'm just like other sentient beings, I should, pre I should not prevent my own suffering either. Now whether the sufferings and the sufferer are real at an ultimate level or not, it's still indisputable that on the relative plane we do experience a lot of misery we would rather much be without. And this is enough reason for us to want to stop the suffering. However, Shantideva points out that if we're not prepared to help others because neither they nor their suffering actually exists, then since we are in the same situation, we shouldn't try to relieve our own suffering either. Pema Chodron says that the cause of our discontent, Shantideva insists, is our mistaken feeling of separateness. She says, this isn't based on anything tangible. It's based on beliefs and concepts. The duality of subject and object, self and other, is an illusion imputed by the mind. The absolute understanding is arrived at through the practice of letting go. Meanwhile, we can work at the level of everyday pain and treat other people's suffering as our own. Thich Han has a practical example of this. Of course, he emphasizes a mindfulness perspective, but this helps us to see both the relative and ultimate nature of what we're dealing with. On the Peace Walk in Memphis, Tennessee in 2002, he gave a talk entitled Mindfulness of Ourselves, Mindfulness of Others, in which he spoke of his own experience of understanding the suffering and the healing of the hatred of enemies. This is what he said. The first function of mindfulness is to recognize what is there, positive or negative. The second function of mindfulness is to embrace it and to get deeply in touch with it. If it is a positive thing like a blue sky or the beautiful face of a child, that becomes something very nourishing, very healing for us. And if it is something negative, like hatred or fear, we should be able to embrace it and bring relief to it. The third function of mindfulness is to help us look deeply into the nature of what is there, in this case fear or anger. The nature of something means the root of that something, how this fear has been created, how this anger has manifested. 
look deeply into the nature of our fear and our anger in order to see their true nature. When we understand, when we have insight into the nature of our fear and our anger, that insight will help transform our fear, our anger, into positive energies. Looking deeply helps us to recognize, to realize things that we have not realized before. In the past three years, we've been bringing groups of Israelis and Palestinians to Plum Village, where we live and practice, to support their practice. We've learned a lot from them also. When they arrive, they always bring with them a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of suspicion. They could not talk to each other, because everyone has a lot of suspicion and anger and fear in himself or herself. The groups of Israelis and Palestinians, when they arrive, they are introduced to the practice of mindful breathing and mindful walking right away. The practice helps to generate the energy of mindfulness so they can recognize and embrace their fear, their anger, their suspicion, their despair. We do it together with the support of the international community of meditation. The Jews and Palestinians practice sitting together, eating mindfully and silently together, walking together, breathing together for a number of days, seven days, eight days, nine days. Every day they listen to a Dharma talk in order to receive the teachings on how to do the practice of mindfully recognizing their fear, their anger, their suspicion and their despair, how to embrace them and how to treat them with non-violence and non-duality. About ten days are necessary for each of them to be able to see more clearly because anger and fear prevent us from seeing things clearly, especially when anger or fear has become collective. When anger has become collective, when fear has become collective, it's extremely dangerous for our nation and for the world. That is why we should practice not only as individuals, but also as communities, as nations. With the support of the international community, the Jews and Palestinians are able to come down and now they are assisted in the practice of listening deeply with compassion to the other groups. Listening to our own suffering, our own fear, our own anger is the first thing we have to do as a person and as a community. After that, when we have some insight about the roots of our fear, our anger, our despair, then we can listen to the other groups of people. While listening, you have to practice mindful breathing in order to keep calm, to maintain compassion in you, because that practice of deep listening is also called the practice of compassionate listening. Compassionate listening means to listen with one purpose, helping the other side, the other person to express himself or herself and to get relief. You don't listen to criticize. You just listen in order to give the other person a chance to empty his heart, to empty her heart in order to get relief. When you can listen like that for one hour to the other person, he or she will get relief. During the whole time of listening, you keep your practice of mindful breathing in order to maintain compassion. If these two things do not exist during the time of listening, your listening will not have a good effect. Even if the other side says things that are full of wrong perceptions, blaming and judgment, you are still capable of listening with compassion. This is extremely important. And that is possible only with the practice of mindful breathing and the maintaining of compassion during the whole time of listening. We have to train ourselves for at least one week in order to be able to do it and to help our beloved one get relief. When you are the person who speaks, 
you practice gentle speech, loving speech. You have the right and you have a duty to tell the other group of people, the other person, what is in your heart. But you have to use the kind of language that can convey your feelings, that can convey your insights and your suffering to the other person, namely the language of love and kindness. If you do not use the language of love and kindness, then you touch off the energy of anger and hatred in the other person, and he or she will not be able to listen to you. That is why it's very important to practice loving speech, gentle speech. That is the subject of the fourth mindfulness training in the Buddhist tradition. So, with the assistance and the support of the Plum Village community, the two groups sit down and practice listening to each other and using gentle speech. It works very well, always. Listening like that, in the presence of many, many other practitioners, you realize, maybe for the first time, that on the other side there are human beings also, and they have already suffered very deeply because of anger, of hatred, of violence, of despair. The moment that you realize there are human beings who have suffered deeply also, compassion begins to arise in your heart, and you are now able to look at them with the eyes of compassion. You have become a bodhisattva, capable of using the eyes of compassion in order to look at other living be human beings. Fourteen days or twenty-one days can produce a miracle. There are people who say, after having been in Plum Village, I believe that peace is possible in the Middle East. Both groups want to bring home the practice, to organize sessions of practice among friends. Now they have set up sanghas, communities of practice, a little bit everywhere in the Middle East. And they want to maintain their practice because their practice helped them maintain compassion and insight and allowed them not to be drowned in the ocean of despair. It is our conviction that if their leaders come together and practice the same kind of practice, they will be able to bring peace and reconciliation to the Middle East. If we practice, if we organize a peace conference supported by many nations, and if we organize so that the two parties have a chance to try this kind of practice, then the peace conference will bring a wonderful result. Because if you still have a lot of anger, a lot of suspicion, a lot of hatred, it would be extremely difficult for you to come to an agreement that will really bring peace and well-being to the two nations, the two people. Thich Nhat Hanh goes on, When we listen to the other person, to the other group of persons, you get insight about their suffering, their difficulty, their fear and their anger. And at the same time, you realize that we do have wrong perceptions also. We have done, we have said things that have created misunderstanding. We have not understood us completely, we have not understood them completely. We vow to practice in order to have a better understanding of ourselves and of them so that our action will be in the direction of peace. I think that in the practice of exchanging self for others, this stands as an excellent example of how to make the theoretical practical. Thich Nhat Hanh shows us how this exchanging self for others involves a deepening of our own understanding of ourselves as much as an understanding of the suffering of others. And from my point of view, this gives us a lot of inspiration to engage in the practice. He gives another even more personal example how the mindful practices he describes helped an estranged married couple dissolve the knots that had made their relationship into a living hell. 
But now that's a story for next week, for time is now up and we must part. Please dedicate the positive potential from the program to the peace and understanding throughout the world that all beings may attain enlightenment. I hope you'll join us again next week. All the blessings of all the enlightened ones be with you now and until you you reach your own enlightenment. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.